So a guy walks into a bar and says, Hey, I'm looking for true human connection. The bartender looks at him and says, Well, what does he say? Welcome to the Surf Conscious Podcast, where service is self-mastery. It's everything, actually. It's Hello, fellas and ladies. How's it going? <laughs> it's funny, uh, in saying ladies, uh, I feel like a twinge of, of creepiness that I don't like feeling. Like I'm sounding just slightly creepy saying ladies. Um, it's a shame that addressing people like that Like, even though I'm saying, hello, ladies, like, I'm acknowledging you are women, I am addressing you as women. <laughs> Simple enough, right? It's better than calling them guys, because they are not guys, but guys sounds casual and non-threatening. Ladies, for some reason, has been corrupted by people over and over again, over the years, saying, ladies, hey, ladies, looking good, <laughs> and so... <laughs> Thanks, all of you too-many-buttons-unbuttoned-shirted men <laughs> making me, forcing me to address ladies as guys. And just knowing, like, when I'm serving in a restaurant, I just, I just feel like occasionally I'm going to just say, hey, guys, welcome, and then some, you know, progressive, feminist-minded female is going to be displeased by that and say, this is a patriarchal society, you know, that uh, doesn't acknowledge femininity and you're assimilating me into masculinity by calling me that. Maybe that monologue will happen inside. Maybe they'll say it to me or make some snarky comment. And, uh, and in that moment, I will ask them for an alternative because <laughs> I do not have one. I do not have one that sounds non-threatening and casual. However, I find it's really funny if uh, there's a table of women... Over the age of 50, I'm fine calling them ladies, because it's like acknowledging a femininity that is still there. And uh, I think they appreciate that, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I think I'm wrong about everything. So uh, I'm, I'm going forth fully aware of the fact that I'm probably wrong about everything when it comes to gender dynamics, gender politics, gender conduct. And actually... Um, this theme may be a feature of today's topic that I wanted to talk about. Um, kind of a kind of a serious one, so to speak. You may not think it is, but it gets into serious territory. And to set the table, I will begin with a quote from Takeda Shingen, a 16th century Japanese warlord. He said, knowledge is not power, it is only potential. Applying that knowledge is power. Understanding why and when to apply that knowledge is wisdom. Ah. I really like that quote. First of all, I like any quote that subverts anything I was brought up with in an academic system that may have been missing the point and not giving us the tools we need to thrive in the real world and really cultivate a deep understanding of ourselves and the world we live in. 
the educational system is absent of that, unfortunately. At least the public one. And um, it just tells us knowledge is power. That's what it tells us. So learn. So keep learning. Keep absorbing and keep collecting information. That is power. Collecting information. Really, though, is it? It certainly is how we're taught. I mean, we're taught a bunch of information without really a sense of the meaning or value of that information and the applicability of that information. We're, we're taught the first step of Tegeda Shingen's path to wisdom. Acquisition of information. Right? But after that, what do you do with the information? How do you make it work to make a better world for yourself and others? And how do you make yourself better at applying such knowledge smoothly? Which would be wisdom. The educational system doesn't bother itself that much with meaning and value of information, which is why we're here now, why I'm here now, serving tables and getting real wisdom from that, somehow. More wisdom, perhaps, than I got from many, many years memorizing formulas without any sense of application and without any sense of the ethics of human relationships. I mean, we're sent off into the world... But are we really taught how to treat people properly? Are we really taught how to cultivate healthy relationships as well? We're not. We have to learn that after on our own. And usually in the fires of trial and error, through our own relationship disasters and foibles and bumbles and stumbles. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. Knowledge, power, relationships, and having ethical ones. What does this all have to do with serving? Um, a lot, but it has to do with every avenue of life. Serving is one place where this absolutely occurs. Because if you are serving in a restaurant, or if you are serving in a retail store, or if you are serving as an independent healer, let's say you're an acupuncturist, let's say you're a therapist, let's say uh, you do what I also do and you teach very much if you teach and you and you actually are responsible for the growth and development of the youth and you're responsible for giving them good information that they can use in their lives you are a member of a very very critical power dynamic and that is the dynamic between someone that has knowledge or information and someone who needs that from you. That is the server-served relationship. That is a huge part of it. Possibly even the essence of it. You know. I know something you don't. I am responsible for providing you with access to that knowledge such that you can use it in your life to make it better. Or simply to satisfy a pretty basic need, as it would be in restaurant service, right? So, you know, someone is coming to a restaurant, they don't know what it offers and how it can be best facilitated to them, as well as the server does, right? The server is the key holder of all of that. And that's why I say, and have said before, especially in my ebook, which you can get on my website by signing up to my email list, uh, quick 
quick little pitch, um, you can get this ebook, and it talks about how to serve from a place of power and how you are serving in a place that is already powerful. It is already a position of power, even though it may not feel like that. You may feel servile. And there are moments where I still feel like that when people speak to me in a condescending voice or ask me preposterous questions like, like, do you, do you know this food? Did you punch in my order? Like basic stuff. Obviously I'm going to be doing my job. Obviously I know this food. I'm a professional providing you with a service. It's a shame that you think so lowly of someone in my profession, you know, um, stuff like that. I find distracts me from the position I'm truly in. And I try not to let that happen. I try not to let distraction happen from my position of power because remembering that I'm in a position of power reminds me that I'm responsible for maintaining sound ethical relationship with myself and the person or people that I'm serving. So what, what is, what is this relationship and how can these ethics be violated? The ethical imperatives of the relationship, how can they be violated? Well, when you have knowledge and someone does not, it is possible to... Actually, in every moment, there's an invitation to manipulate them for your own gain. Exploit them in some way, exploit that power dynamic in some way for your own gain. In a restaurant, actually, the parameters are pretty limited as to how much you can exploit them. Firstly, I mean, firstly, you could, you could pressure them into getting something and romanticize it and tell them it's awesome that they weren't really willing to pay for initially. Uh, you know, some people do this really well and really skillfully. I don't at all like doing it. I like to simply create options and create suggestions and let them find their own inspiration. And if they want to splurge on a really nice bottle of wine that they weren't otherwise thinking about, I want to make sure it was absolutely them that thought to do that. And I just simply made options available, you know, that they already, that they already wanted. Just, they just didn't know how to ask for it. Right. That's good service. You're providing someone with something they already wanted and just didn't know quite how to ask for. It's not, it's not manipulating or pressuring someone into thinking they want something that they actually don't. Okay, that's like old school used car sales. And that's not a good way to cultivate a relationship because they may, they may in the moment buy, they may in the moment be pretty happy, but they may, they may think back and think, oh, you know what, I think this person manipulated me in some way. I think this person pressured me a little too hard in some way. And I feel like a bit of a sucker, you know, for, uh, for handing them the keys and uh, letting them in to my wallet. <laughs> so that is one way to exploit someone through your superior... No, not superior knowledge. It isn't better knowledge. It isn't even more in total. It just is knowledge about something relevant to a situation that they don't have. So it is not to be overly exalted this position that you're in it, you just happen to be in it in that moment in that situation the moment where a need can potentially be satisfied right and another way you can exploit people through having this added knowledge in the moment is uh, through feeling like you're superior to them that is another way uh, I am better than you because I know this I am better than you because I have better taste than you. And I, you know, etc., etc. You Philistine, how can you not know what Barolo is? 
I shall open your eyes. Etc., uh, etc. Et this was me. This is mainly my thing. I never liked selling people on stuff, but I certainly liked demonstrating intellectual superiority. That is a massive obstacle to human connection. When you are simply teaching and preaching and not at all listening to who they are and where they're coming from and offering what might be useful to them in a way where it feels good that you're helping them by adding to their understanding rather than simply elevating yourself above them. And this is a defense mechanism to me feeling insecure and inferior in other aspects of life. So, you know, I demonstrated my superiority there. And, um, really, really got in the way of my growth as a professional because I, I had this constant frustration that people weren't caught up to my appreciation for things as well, which is a funny place to be in. So, like, I firstly looked, like, enjoyed looking down on them, and secondly was frustrated that they were actually, like, ignorant. So I depended on their ignorance to feel better and at the same time was frustrated by it. What a ridiculous position to put myself in. And a ridiculously stale place to be in if I wanted to evolve as a hospitality professional. Because ultimately, people don't at all remember really even the value you added to them in terms of knowledge. They just remember how you made them feel. Maya Angelou said that, I'm pretty sure. I'm going to double-check that. I'm pretty sure it was Maya Angelou. People don't remember what you said or did, but they certainly remember how you made them feel. Feeling has the most powerful way to make an impression on your memory system. And uh, they will now see you through the lens of the aggregate and collection of all the ways that you've made them feel over time. How you tend to make them feel. So if you want to be a good hospitality professional, you have to tend to make people feel good, not tend to feel superior over them so that you feel good. <laughs> it's really not about you. Make it not about you, and you get everything. You grow because people feel good being around you, and they will afford you all the opportunities that you could possibly want, if you so want them, in the world of hospitality. And in the world in general where service is part of it, right? So let's look at the Western medical system, right? Which is notorious for hoarding and lording knowledge and power. We're the people in the white coats. We're the ones with the education. And, you know, a well-earned status, definitely. I mean, it is hard to learn that much technical information and be able to execute it to identify problems and help solve them. Absolutely. Hats off to doctors. However, there is a tendency of uh, exploiting a dynamic of power. Not even in the really criminal ways where you hear about doctors like, you know, um, poisoning people or doing crazy things. Um, but just in the way of... Uh, thinking their knowledge is infallible and that you can't question it and that you can't learn things for yourself and your own health and your own body and what's right for it, right? It's only what they say, what they prescribe, which they are often prescribing in a way that is exploitative because they would financially benefit from prescribing certain things. Um, there's restrictions put on that in the medical industry now where they can't take bribes from pharmaceutical companies for like 
tending to prescribe their drugs, but it's all still there. It's all very tainted and corrupt. And what is happening now? Because of this tendency to hoard knowledge and status and use it as a way of having power over people, they are losing market share to alternative medicine. Alternative medicine, natural healing, you know, which is kind of blossoming in kind with any sort of Eastern practice, empowers the patient. It empowers the person coming to them to give them a program of health and well-being such that they are self-sufficient and do not depend on the judge and jury of a doctor to make every little decision in their lives. And there are other virtues to the alternative medicine system, but I won't get into all of them now. But just in the way of giving power back to people and not allowing a, uh, a hoarding and lording power dynamic, it becomes very attractive for a good reason. What's going to happen in the restaurant world? Well, you know, snooty restaurants are kind of falling out of fashion a bit. I mean, there's certainly some really high-level cuisine happening. But in terms of the vibe of, like, the server who is, like, and, like, sticks their nose up uh, because, you know, they may not be as refined. The guest may not have as refined taste as them or whatever. Um, That's falling out of fashion. And I am certain, I'm absolutely certain that restaurants are going to lose market share to delivery. Uh, At least the sit-in experience is going to be subverted by the ability to uh, order on an app or online, point and click, and have it delivered. You know, with Uber Eats and DoorDash, you can can get some of the the best food in your town delivered to you. You don't have to go there now. And um, you can avoid the middleman, you know, because it's you making the decision because you just look at all the food and there's ratings and you can go from, you know, um, sort of community um, feedback on all of the food. And then you order and the, and the person bringing it to you is absolutely dispassionate and not involved in the process. They just bring the food and you get it and it's all you. You're in control of the situation entirely. You've cut out the middlemen. And... Um, and that will become attractive insofar as servers exploit their position of power. It will never fully replace, you know, going to a place and having the ambient experience and, um, you know, getting really warm service from those, you know, few special places that do have that uh, consistently anyway. Um, but uh, the rest of these guys... Are, uh, are going to get a run for their money from more streamlined experiences where people don't have to feel like they're at the, at the mercy of um, someone that knows more than them. And ov- obviously there's going to be other and probably bigger catalysts for the rise of delivery. Um, obviously it's because it's just great not to have to get off your ass. <laughs> I love it. I love it when I'm on my day off. I don't want to be in a restaurant necessarily. I like my sanctity. Uh, and I like to just chill out with my wife, cozy up, you know, watch something and, uh, order some food in. Great. But, um, I think it's undeniable, uh, how much people would like to avoid dealing with someone who's going to, um, 
potentially exploit power. And, you know, think about the spiritual community now. This is, I think, really the most poignant example of teacher-student relationship dynamics that need to be really, really respected and really observed ethically and constantly be observed and evaluated by the teachers involved in order to maintain their integrity. It's, it's so important. And I've seen it fall apart disastrously uh, so many times. Maybe I'm speaking from experience because this is the world I come from and I've um, firsthand witnessed scandals and issues um, in this world that I don't think were dealt with properly. Because um, I know also, you know, there's the same codes of conduct when it comes to, like, the therapist and the patient, right? Uh, like, especially in the medical profession where it's a psychiatrist and they've, you know, sworn the Hippocratic Oath and it's, you know, um, on them to not get involved with their patients because they're in a tremendous position of power. They are the key to this person healing and being a better person. You know, they have potentially uh, a solution to their greatest problems in life. You know, the problems of their mind and the, the disruptions that it's causing to their well-being. When you have the potential solution to that and you're standing in front of them, you are holding the cards in a certain way. And these people will end up falling for you uh, because it's, it's a mistaken romance almost all of the time. Uh, and the same thing in the spiritual world. You're offering someone the, the answer, in a way, or answers, or some pathway to their own self-realization where their problems are... Uh, their previous problems, which, which were really holding them back, turn out not to be such huge problems anymore. And um, now they have so much more meaning and value in their life. So much more is happening that they want to happen in their life and it's taking shape in the way they want. And maybe they have problems still, but they're like higher quality problems, you know, because really they're like growing and evolving. Uh, they might find that they are attracted to their teacher. Uh, the only thing is this must not be confused with actual... Uh, romantic love for the teacher themselves. Same with the therapist or the psychiatrist. It's not them. Okay? It's what they represent. It's what is flowing through them, the knowledge and the information and the insight into the student or patient. And also, it's what they're enlivening in the student or patient themselves that's already there that's waking them up to wisdom and knowledge and self-understanding that they already have. It's already there. And so what they do is they make this person, this individual vessel responsible for that. And they say, I must be attracted to this human body here that's conveying this stuff to me. When it's mistaken, what they're really feeling love for is themselves and the world they're discovering. And um, it is on the teacher to discriminate um, between uh, these feelings and what's really happening. 
And when they don't, when they know they should, then they are absolutely ethically failing. Because, you know, in um, ancient traditions, uh, Buddhism, yogic traditions, the teacher-student relationship is sacred. You do not mess with that relationship. It is very, very easy to corrupt. And I have seen spiritual teachers just mow them down with machine gun fire of rationalizations for unethical behavior. The most common example, of course, would be um, male teachers uh, becoming intimately involved with their students. And this is a very complicated subject. I won't get too into it. But their reasons for doing so would be numerous. One would be, well, they were attracted to me. I was attracted to them. That's two consenting adults mutually attracted to each other. What's wrong with that, right? And then the retort to that would be, well, you're in a position of power. And you need to take control of the situation. It's on you to identify how that, uh, that is a potential disruption of a very important bond that must be sustained. A very delicate dynamic where the teacher can no longer need something from the student. A teacher can't need anything from a student, just as someone serving can't need anything from someone they're, they're, they're giving service to. So as soon as you cross over the threshold of intimate relationship, now the teacher is uh, needing intimacy from the student. And not only that, it's in certain situations, in many situations, superficial. It's just sexual intimacy. It's ob- it's objectifying your student. And um, really, what you're teaching someone spiritually is that they are more than just their body. They are more than just all of these things. But then as soon as you have a relationship with them, you're saying, well, you are your body, and your body gives me great pleasure. I depend on your body for pleasure. That... Right there, the dynamic is lost. And teachers will rationalize that. They will say, well, you know, this is all like modern Western Christian-influenced conditioning to think sex is this big deal when it's not. You know, we're like, we're like unbounded beings that don't need to be constrained by this stuff. And I would say, fine, that's true, We don't need to, like, stigmatize sexual relationships. That doesn't mean you haven't disrupted the teacher-student dynamic. No way can it be carried on in the same way, purely. And no way can you ever be really sure that your student was consenting when you have so much power over them to misinterpret really, what you are to them. It's on you to identify that, not them. You can't just be like, oh, they wanted it. No, it doesn't matter how much they want it. You need to identify that. What they want is jeopardizing what you can be for them. And that's really the most important thing. What role must I always be for this student? What must I always be ever vigilant in making sure that I'm always embodying and always being for this student? What boundaries do I always need to sustain 
in order to be the best thing that I can be for this person? And virtually always the answer is not sexually involved. Sure, okay, this might not concern you, this exact situation, but it is a microcosm of any dynamic because in the world, everything is potentially a teacher-student dynamic because in any given situation, one person potentially knows more about whatever's relevant to the present moment than the other person. Someone has the keys to the kingdom. And how responsibly, you know, do you hold these keys? And actually, um, this, this situation does happen in hospitality too, the potential of um, getting intimate with um, whoever you're serving. In hospitality, the stakes aren't as high though, let's be honest. Um, and generally, given the frivolity of the environment and the frivolity of the mindset of someone serving too, uh, most of the time, you know, like a lot of people are doing this job just to have fun. Or some of them are doing it and they don't want to do it. They, they'd rather be doing, you know, something that, um, you know, they f- gives them more satisfaction. Hopefully I can change that <laughs> for you. Uh, not change that, simply give you knowledge to realize that yourself. Um, now, you may be serving someone who shows interest in you and with your frivolous mindset, may think, sure, why not? Let's have some fun and get some fun out of this job, you know? And someone who's out may think the same way. Let's have a little fun with the person serving me. Um, But it is important to know that you are disrupting a hospitality dynamic by doing this if they were to be a regular guest, okay? Awkwardness aside, actually, awkwardness is really the manifestation of a disrupted dynamic, right? We've now made things uh, a lot more mutually dependent on pleasure than they were before. And now whatever whatever can be offered is no longer pure, right? In terms of like a, a serving, being served dynamic. I know servers that pride themselves on, you know, getting numbers from the people they serve. Or even if it's innocent, even if, like, they become friends with people they serve, they love breaking things out of that dynamic. Because it's like they've won. They they were victorious over their servile position, and now their guest wants, you know, something more from them, and is actually giving and, and giving pleasure back in return, Right? It's like, aha, I'm getting something from you beyond being your servant. And um, and also it's like, I love being seen as attractive uh, beyond just being a server. I'd like to think that I'm just as attractive as anybody else and not just a peon carrying things around for you. Sure, of course. That allure is totally understandable. And that might be even more attractive to you as a server than even the person themselves. You know, that feeling that they're giving you of being more than just a server. But it's lost. The The hospitality dynamic is lost. I think it's it's hard to serve in that way after, like, an intimate relationship has occurred. But I don't know. I'm sure there are exceptions. You be the judge of that. 
You be the judge of that if you even get an opportunity to serve this person again. You probably won't. I think it would be unlikely that they would return, you know. Maybe you could continue a relationship with them. Uh, but I, I doubt they would continue to patronize your establishment. I knew this one guy. I worked with him like a million years ago. And uh, this was in the uh, this was in Canada, and in the Toronto area in the eighties and nineties, I think. Yeah, eighties and early nineties. He worked in the sex underground there, and um, that was a thing then. It's not really anymore, but that was like a big industry there then, as it was in like a lot of cities, and. Um, he, um, this is like, um, like, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it, I don't know this world very well, but it sounds like, like, clubs, you know, with drinks, and, you know, socializing, and all of this stuff, except it's, like, eroticism everywhere, you know, like, there's shows happening with, like, um, you know, straight-up erotic acts, there's, like, you know, people walking around naked and all this stuff, and he worked there, um, as like a you get like an entertainer of some sort, right? And um, his patrons, um, female patrons, were constantly begging him to go home with them and like showering him with money because it's kind of strippery. You're like showered with money to do you know sexy things or whatever, dance and whatnot. And um, he said that he never. I think he made the mistake of going home with them once. He went home with someone, and he'll never make that mistake again because he lost a customer, <laughs> because he gave them, you know, he gave them everything he could. He gave them his body. Now they wanted nothing else from him. The mystique is gone. The potentiality is gone. All that stuff's gone. They went on to someone else. So, yeah, lesson learned there. If you want to maintain a relationship, don't give them everything you can give them all in one go, you know? Keep boundaries there. Withhold intimacy. Keep showing up and just doing your job well. Connect, you know, be warm. Do all of that stuff without crossing those boundaries into intimacy, and you will cultivate a good, trusting relationship. One where there is intimacy, where now you, like, want something from them physically, then that potential, like, their ability to trust you as this sort of detached person of service that's more just interested in their needs and how they can help them achieve those, then that's lost, and then all the other mystique and potentiality is lost as well. And, yeah, you may not have that relationship anymore. So, I don't know, there's really, like, raw, like, you know, mammalian things at play here sometimes, and um, bringing intimacy into it will uh, allow those things to become potential obstacles to a very a very clean, pure relationship of person serving and being served. Okay, how did we get here? Uh, into the erotic underground of Toronto in the 1980s. I did not plan on talking about that. It just somehow came up to me as a very good illustration. I guess I need better illustrations <laughs> in my arsenal. Okay, what do I really want to talk about? Okay, how to interface as uh, someone with information and knowledge in a way that is smooth, 
in a way that doesn't potentially off-put someone or, you know, trigger them into thinking that you're lording power over them. I'm recording inside now. Wow, what a difference. I was just reviewing the audio and uh, the trickling water from the pool. It was so loud, but it was so nice outside. And I'm not editing any of that because I don't have the audio chops, nor do I have the time to invest in re-recording. So it's just going to have to be, you know, a trickly experience for you. Some uh, plumbers had to come and do some very noisy work out there, which kind of created a fitting um, end of chapter and uh, beginning to the next chapter of this episode where I'm now talking about how to embody wisdom rather than use knowledge to alienate. And you might be thinking to yourself, okay, he's going to give me some Eastern wisdom now. Um, I'm not going to give you any wisdom whatsoever. Not because I'm not going to provide you with Eastern perspectives and knowledge or information sourced from Eastern perspectives, but you can't actually give someone wisdom. That's one important thing to understand. Wisdom is not given informationally. It's cultivated interactionally. Whether you're interacting with the world and learning lessons on how to be a more masterful human being at at embodying the things you know and actioning the things that you want to action, getting the results you want, you acquire wisdom in the process. You know how to live more effectively. That is something that is discovered by the person living life. And also wisdom is cultivated through, you know, the um, the realizations of deep meditation and other practices. You can be isolated and cultivate wisdom as well. And that is certainly the old school way to do it and is definitely a way that is still very viable to do. But modern times means we are all called to cultivate wisdom in the field of life. You know, this is one big wisdom cultivating scientific experiment being alive in the world. We're in we're in a petri dish where we can constantly be observing results and um gathering wisdom. Wisdom is a personal understanding of things. It is not just abstract information that I can give you. Like I could say to you like we're all connected. That is a concept that is like an informational blip. And it certainly has the potential, if lived, to be the basis of a wise existence. But I can't just transfer to you this experience of everything is connected. You need to cultivate the experience of everything is connected. It has to be like a sensory experience. And it has to be like a natural impulse of experience, like a natural thing that occurs within you for it to be embedded as wisdom, as lived experience. Wisdom is lived experience that shapes you into what you are today. And it's the sort of lens through which you look at the world. But it's not 
abstract concepts you've connect you've collected. It's not abstract ideas. It's stuff that's been actioned, proven, and become habitual, basically. So in the teacher-student relationship, one might fancy themselves purveyors of wisdom. That would be inaccurate. They are purveyors of information, knowledge. They're also purveyors of an example through which a student can learn from observing and then follow themselves, if they like, or at least appropriate, make their own. That is how the transfer occurs. This is not like, I have wisdom, boom, here it is. You are so lucky that I have cast it upon you. No. You simply provide the student with the raw material in order to make their own discoveries. Themselves, right? Just like when I'm serving tables, I am providing a guest with, you know, raw information. I might make it, I might lend it a bit of a glitter, you know, um, because that's what the experience of being in a restaurant calls for. But it is um, just me giving them what they need to then make their own discoveries. That is what I'm doing on the surface. And that is what any spiritual teacher is doing on the surface, giving you information. Covertly, they are, and I am sometimes, not always, <laughs> covertly a teacher is being an example of the kind of person that a masterful person would be. And things are transferred like that. Information is transferred like that through being an example. And that is actually the most effective way to communicate, by being an example. By simply embodying the world that you would like to see be created. I talk about this in my ebook, Five Steps to Giving Empowered Service. And uh, one of them is serve as the kind of world you'd like to see. Serve as an example of that. And it's really the best way to communicate because people will not feel that you're imposing any ideas or information on them. It will not at all seem like you have an agenda, because you don't really. Um, you're just being an example. That's it. You're embodying wisdom. You're embodying all that you've cultivated in yourself, and it makes other people say, hmm, what have you got? What is it that you've done in your life to get here? Maybe I'd like... I'd like entry into that somehow. Or maybe they won't say that. Actually, most of the time they won't, uh, which is why you need to remember the virtues of someone walking away, not having outwardly or inwardly even said, I want to know all the things you know. I, wanna, I want everything you've got. Maybe you just brighten their day a little bit and they paid it forward. Maybe they just followed your example a little bit and been a better person to others. That's it. Jobs finished. You have done your part embodying wisdom. If you find that what you're saying is not getting through to people, you know, generally in life, and um, your words do not have the power you want them to and the influence you want them to, rather than looking to learn how to be more persuasive, maybe look into how much you are giving words too much credit and information too much credit. Although there is tremendous benefit to learning proper communication and um, mindful communication 
and um, all kinds of tools and techniques um, to use your voice skillfully. I am currently learning those things, and they've been extremely beneficial. So, yeah, let's not discredit communication uh, verbally, but let's not just think the transfer of, like, raw information is the be-all, end-all. It is absolutely not. It's just one, one river on the landscape. But if you do communicate, there is so much to get into here. But I think one way of demonstrating a wise lens through which communication is occurring is to humanize information you're giving. And the humanization you're giving it is you. You, you're, you're demonstrating that it is your own perspective and not some sort of absolute truth. And uh, a great way to do this is to humanize the information. You know, you can start with, I think, I feel, I believe. This is my experience that I'm transferring to you. It's not something that I believe to be doctrine. And um, that also connects people to you. It lets them in on who you are. And there's just a very, very subtle human connection that occurs there when you are demonstrating something as your own opinion rather than just some information that you're parroting. And in many cases, you do well to even nakedly state that whatever you're saying is, in fact, biased by your own perspective. You know, it's just my opinion. That is an absolutely viable way to say something. And what you're doing here is you're inviting their opinion. Because in demonstrating that subjective perspective is a value here in saying, this is my opinion, but it may not be right. You're inviting someone to give their opinion and offer their perspective in any situation. That's always better to do that. And you create connection. Here's my perspective. Here's yours. Our perspectives are now connecting and intermingling and negotiating. So really though, like how do you really know if you're being ethical? Like, ultimately ethical, right? Because every country and culture has its own system of ethics that will differ from another's. So, you know, if you're seeking to be ethical, how could you be sure you're not just, you know, being culturally conditioned by stuff that's potentially wrong and just, you know, bound to be outmoded or already outmoded? For example, some cultures have really, really old-fashioned ideas about intimacy and sexuality. So if you were to observe those, you know, ethical rules and regulations, then um, you would be, you know, conditioning yourself by something very, very old-fashioned. Is that good? Is that something you want to do? Is that something that's beneficial to you as a person, as a professional, as someone that is growing and blossoming you know, in what you do. So as an extremely helpful orientation point, I will refer to uh, my good friend Immanuel Kant, a uh, German philosopher from the 1700s who uh, talked a lot about ethics and um, pared down the essence of ethics very, very well, like no one had before. And he said, ultimately... Ethics is about whether you are 
doing something, engaging in something, or even thinking something, thinking about something, are you viewing that thing as a means to an end or an end in and of itself? And uh, that is basically a question of how do you value the thing? How much do you respect and value this thing? If it's simply a means to an end, then you do not truly value and respect it in and of itself, its own innate qualities, its own innate beauty and perfection. If you are just looking at it as a thing that provides you with a certain amount of gratification that fits your agenda without considering at all uh, what the agenda or hopes or dreams or, you know, impetus of that thing might be, then you are using it as a means to an end and you are not in an ethical relationship with that thing. So if you have a student and you allow the relationship to become intimate, then unless the circumstances are absolutely extenuating, there must be some element in there where they are becoming a means to an end for you. And their agenda and their needs are now subordinate to yours. Now, couldn't this be said about any relationship? Okay, fine. Let's say I meet someone, I'm sexually attracted to them in some way. And I want to be intimate with them. They are providing me with satisfaction of that attraction. Yes, potentially. Potentially, there are intimate relationships that um, are not ethical. And actually, even in an established marriage, you know, sometimes... People just want something from the other person without considering their needs and their wants. Uh, that is less ethical. There are ethical negotiations happening constantly, you know, when people are negotiating their needs. So, so yeah, I mean, this happens all the time. The stakes are high when you have a student, though, because you are responsible for their growth. They have contracted you. There's sort of a hidden contractual obligation of you treating their growth responsibly. And doing so requires that their needs as a student are always primary. Same goes for hospitality. Sure, they pay their bill at the end in a restaurant, but ultimately their needs must be first. And if they're not, then you are violating the unspoken contract of the server served dynamic and um, you can do this in very subtle ways. And uh, this podcast episode is about the not-so-subtle, but also the subtle ways that you can do this. So if I look down on a guest, and maybe I speak in a condescending tone to them, or uh, let's say I make a joke at their expense uh, to make other members of a party laugh, or what have you, right? I am using them as a means to an end, because they are a tool for me to feel better about myself. And I am not being attuned to their needs and their agenda in that moment. So I have broken a sort of ethical relationship with them in that moment. So really being ethical would mean being really, really present. And remaining in ethical alignment would require that. So if I were to take Kant's philosophy and say, okay, then how do I do this properly? How do I just acknowledge and value someone 
as innately important. Well, that's when I would take his philosophy into the realms of like Eastern spirituality, where looking at the true value of things means looking at it with a state of presence where you're not allowing your mind to tell you what you can gain from this person. And, and then always speaking to that person and always interacting with them in ways that treat them as an extension of yourself because we're all connected, you know, and it's not such a cosmic, like crazy sweeping idea. We are literally, uh, an interrelated system. If you look at how things work just as a biologist, right. And we literally are a tribe and the, um, relationships and respect for those relationships is primary to our thriving as a tribe. So, Ethics is always going beyond yourself. And by, by that, I don't mean you're always, always negating your own needs. You, you're not doing that. You are simply avoiding the traps of self-gratification, of taking something about someone that is innately valuable and beautiful and connected and part of you and using it um, as a means that really isn't fully appreciating really what it is. You're just using some aspect of it to gratify yourself. So yeah, this is really hard to do perfectly. <laughs> and that can't be expected ever. Certainly, uh, what I'm talking about here is something I violate on the daily, on the hourly, maybe <laughs> maybe every few minutes. I don't know. Um, it's actually easy to every few minutes because um, you can just think unethically all day about yourself too. And there are endless opportunities to behave unethically towards yourself. And uh, they may surprise you, actually. Um, because, uh, actually, this was pointed out in a Mark Manson article that I really liked called The One Rule for Life, which talks about Kant's philosophy as applied to things like laziness and uh, addiction and um, all of the things that we do that are maybe like unproductive or self-destructive um, even though they provide like short-term pleasure at the cost of, um, you know, our long-term growth and development. Um, so sitting around like entertaining ourselves all day is using our own mind as a means to an end. We're using our mind as a pleasure receptacle, not for its true potential, which is to be, uh, you know, a productive contributing member of the world, you know, and, um, sure there are ways to constantly get in this spiral of guilt by saying, Oh, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. Um, but abuse to oneself and, uh, abuse of one's time for sort of frivolous pleasures, um, excessively is, uh, not just destructive to yourself. It is costing humanity uh, the benefit you could possibly be bringing to it. So Kant views that as unethical because you're using yourself for pleasure rather than value creation in the world. So you can even do that. And you can do that with very, very, you know, very, very small things in like really, really small ways every day. And uh, not to make you neurotic, gosh, looking back on everything I've said the last hour or so is definitely potential, like, fuel for neuroticism. <laughs> Always being like, uh-oh, did I just do something wrong? Did I do it unethical? If I use it into a means to an end, oh no. Right, okay. Chill out. Relax. You've got your baseline here, okay? 
and you've got a thing to consider. But ultimately, you know, just drop into the present. Take a look at what something is, aside from all of the internal machinations, and all of the little things that you're extracting from a moment or a person that give you a little, like, splash of uh, enjoyment or gratification. And just, you know, pay attention to all those little times that you do get gratification from someone. What are they getting from it? What's the situation getting from it? Is it just you? And if it's just you, then yeah, maybe you are using using a person or a situation just a little more than you need to. And um, it may not take a huge adjustment at all to get to a place of uh, what be what would be traditionally considered ethical or in integrity. Gosh, I sound like such a stuffy pants, a stodgy poopy pants here. <laughs> I can almost hear myself getting like booed off the stage, like as I say things like this, because yeah, they're no fun, and they're contra to what some people might like expect to be a product of our like evolution beyond you know this like really. Let's call it like Protestant or Christian uh, way of like looking at the world as like, you know, no fun, serious, you know, always maintain integrity, you know, rather than like, oh, let's evolve past all these boundaries of like right and wrong. And like, oh, why is sex so bad? Why is pleasure so bad? Oh, yeah. I, I'm not really I mean, I'm the last person on Earth that would um, be like a huge promoter of hardcore Christian values. Uh Definitely, the Eastern system is more appealing to me. But the Eastern system requires discipline to really, really do right and um, really always be in a place of right action and right speech, as they'd call it. And in the beginning, it may feel like one is depriving themselves. Um, But after those habits are formed and you can see the fruits of behaving in integrity and ethics by the quality of your relationships and um, the quality of just your present moment experience, uh, the pleasure of that is far greater, actually. It just it just requires actually a breaking of conditioning, of conditioning ourselves to re- require pleasure or gratification from things in that very short-term utilitarian way. Because um, although... A lot of modern spiritual people may think that we need to like evolve past all these taboos about sex being some kind of big deal. Um, sex being something that we depend on for pleasure from other people or to say that we truly have an intimate connection with them is also conditioning that we need to break. Requiring it you know, so much as a measure of like success <laughs> in, in having some sort of relationship of intimacy with people, that needs to be broken too. And if you're a server that really measures how much you've like transcended the server role by how much your people that you serve, you know, want more from you than just service, you know, whether it's friendship or, um, you know, intimacy, then um, you would need to revisit really the integrity of your role. And the um, metric you use for success in in transcending your role, because I believe I transcend my role simply by really showing up for it um, in ways that 
blow everyone's expectations out of the water. I'm I'm based in Miami. It's not hard to exceed expectations. Um, but just the consistently showing up and consistently mastering the art of showing up and being present and being fully invested and attuned to what people need, I think that absolutely takes me beyond the um, the narrative my, my head might spin around about that role of being, oh, I'm just this servant that no one respects and blah, blah, blah. No, absolutely not. And the connections that come from that are in a way intimate. They're just not in the traditional way we'd consider intimate in the West. But something happens there. A magic happens there that doesn't require intimacy or like them texting me or us following each other on Instagram or whatever, even though that happens sometimes uh, because people want to learn about what I do sometimes uh, outside of serving. But either way, um, yeah, you don't need that much from people, you know? Just remember that you don't need them to give you that much. You can be your source of pleasure and gratification by really showing up for life, showing up to whatever the present moment demands of you, and uh, really being aware of, of how you're blocking this in any moment. How much are you best embodying what's good in you rather than feeling the need to preach it or convince others of it with words, too? You know, convincing people is a way of, like, exerting power over them and um, potentially abusing your role as someone that knows something someone doesn't. Um, sermonizing. You know, we don't transfer wisdom through a sermon. We transfer it as being an example of that and just inviting those to learn from it simply by doing us awesomely. That's all you've got to do. Do you awesomely. And... Behaving ethically towards other people are giving them space to do them awesomely without needing anything more from them than them. We don't need the pleasure they can give us, the mobilization that they can give us. You know, how often do servers serve people thinking like, oh, this guy's my ticket out of here. He's like a big shot. I've talked about this in previous podcasts, right? Um, oh, I better impress them. Maybe they'll offer me a job, right? That is absolutely as far as Immanuel Kant is concerned, unethical. They're a means to your career uh, getting better. They are not They are not their shining individual selves to you, and you are not connecting with that aspect of them, just their status, and people will block that the first chance they get because they want the true them being connected to, and that's what you're doing when you're being ethical. You're connecting to who people truly are, their absolute shining essence within and keep an eye out for that. That's it. And you're ethical. You're going to you're gonna screw it up. <laughs> I always do. But make that the priority and not the gratification people can give you. And uh, you're going to be awesome. You already are, I'm sure. Gosh, lighten up. Someone's got to. I'm certainly... <laughs> I'm certainly a little too serious sometimes. Anyway, I am done talking, I think. Get out there and be boring and ethical. <laughs> All right, guys, uh, you have a good one. All the best. Much love. Ciao. Thank you for listening to the Serve Conscious Podcast. It's always great having you. While you're here, side shuffle a bit over to the website, www.serveconscious.com, where there is more, hopefully really valuable content. From articles to past podcast episodes to me on other people's shows talking about gosh knows what. Please, check us out. 
and uh, subscribe to the mailing list to get a really cool ebook that packs in a lot of valuable stuff in a short space. All right, see you later. Bye bye. Thank mm-hmm. you.